Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. My name is Brandon Adams, lifestyle entrepreneur and inventor, passionate about helping others with creating something great and becoming unforgettable. Each week we discuss helpful tips on becoming a successful entrepreneur and interview other entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Our goal is to help take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. In this episode of the University of Young Entrepreneurs, we have Chris Hawker. Chris is a famous inventor, entrepreneur, and founder of the company Trident Design. To date, him and his company have taken over 80 products to market. Not only that, they're also experts in crowdfunding. Some of the campaigns you may be aware of are QuickKey, they raised over $200,000, and the Carbon Flyer, which raised over $300,000. Not only that, they are also responsible for helping redesign the Coolest Cooler, a product that actually launched on Kickstarter last summer, and it raised over $13.2 million. Until a few weeks ago, it was actually the largest crowdfunding campaign in history. So Chris talks about how they helped the inventor, Ryan Grepper, redesign that cooler and make it look the coolest it is today. Chris goes on to talk about how to develop ideas. If you guys are looking to develop your own idea, he gives insight on how to create a product. And then he shares his story of how he invented the Power Squid, which became a wildly successful product where he made over a million dollars in royalty payments. He gives his story and how he struggled. Chris talks about the whole process from beginning to end, how he turned that idea into a million dollar product. And then we go on to crowdfunding. He gives a lot of great insight about crowdfunding. If you're looking to do a campaign, this is one episode you don't want to miss. He talks about his tips to create a successful campaign, what you need to do prior to your campaign, some of the marketing tips to get a lot of attraction, and also after the campaign, how you can keep that momentum going even after the campaign's launched, how you can create sales, how you can keep them sales rolling. Chris has a lot of great information in this show. He's honestly one of the top inventors, and his company is one of the top crowdfunding companies in this country. A lot of great information that you guys don't want to miss. But before we get started, I want to do a shout out to our sponsor, Arctic Stick. Arctic Stick is a new, innovative product that both cools and flavors your bottle beverage. You simply pop the top, fill full your desired liquid, and freeze. Drop into your drink to keep colder longer, or you twist and drop in for a flavor burst. I like to work out a lot. It works great when I go to the gym. I can keep my drink cold throughout the entire time. Or I'll put my energy shots inside the Arctic Stick. I can pop the top, have an energy shot, or twist and drop on my drink to have an energy drink to get my workout going. To get a six-pack of the Arctic Sticks, you can go to arcticstick.com. That's www.arctic.com. Get a six-pack today and be prepared to take on your summer with Arctic Stick. And now, guys, what you all have been waiting for, the show with Chris Hawker. Let's get started. Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. My name is Brandon Adams, and on today's show, we have a special guest, a famous inventor out of Columbus, Ohio. We have Chris Hawker. 
Chris, how you doing, my man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, I'm excited. I, uh, I'm excited to be at Trident Design. I love developing products. I love seeing ideas turn into reality. And uh, I actually came across you here. It was two months ago. I was uh, doing some research. My New Year's resolution was to be one of the most knowledgeable people in product development of my time. I'm 25. <laughs> I have yet to catch up to you and many others, but I wanted to help others. You'll never catch up. I'm 40. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always be 15 years ahead of you. Oh, so true. Well, we can work together. Then it'll go a lot easier. But I, uh, I, I love helping others out there that have no idea. People come to me with an idea, and they think that they can have it happen overnight. They think... $20,000 will make it happen when it's really sometimes a quarter of a million. But I saw your interview in a car. Lewis Howes was videotaping you, and you were telling about how you had taken 80 products to market. You had about 30 patents, and you've made millions from all the products you did. And I loved how humble you were, and you weren't cocky on it. And I knew that day I wanted to interview you, and uh, it actually led me, Lewis, led me to do my own podcast. So what do you know? I'm doing a podcast, and now I'm interviewing you, Chris Hawker. It's, Dream it's awesome. It, declare it, deliver it, just <laughs> like that. Amen, amen. So uh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I want to jump right into it. I want to hear first, start where, where you began as a young entrepreneur. You were selling algae scrapers back at the aquarium business. Tell me where you came up with your first idea and how it led you to where you are today. Well, actually, I got my entrepreneurial start when I was 13. I bought a lovebird, and then I got another lovebird, and then I started breeding lovebirds, and then pretty soon I was breeding seven species of birds. Oh, wow. Bedroom. I was like a weird kid with very supportive parents who let me fill up my bedroom full of birds, and then I got into fish, and so I was breeding and selling the birds to pet stores and, yeah. and uh, collectors and the zoo. And then I got into fish and then I started hanging out at the fish store and then I got a job at the fish store and then I started my first sort of business which is an aquarium maintenance company out of the fish store where I was working. Yeah. And that's where I got started with product development where I initially was hand fabricating filters that I designed of, of improved design for wet dry filters for um, saltwater aquariums. Yeah. And then when I went off to go to college, I l grew up in Northwest Ohio. I moved to Columbus to go to Ohio State and had to leave my company behind, which was doing pretty well at the time. Um, so I decided I would start selling these filters that I had uh, fabricated, um, start selling a mail order. And yeah. then that was my first sort of stab at selling something other than to my clients. And that's also where I had my first like big failure where that, that immediately flamed out. I burned through all my money very quickly. <laughs> I'd saved up like $20,000. Oh, so wow. I'd, yeah, I'd come to college with twenty grand, burning a hole in my pocket, and I was like, woohoo, I'm rich. <laughs> and then like three months later, I'd spent it all trying to launch this filter business. It can go yeah. quick. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. When, and back then, I spent like a big chunk of it on a color separation for my magazine ads. So like these are expenses that uh, don't even exist today. Anyhow, so what happened was I... Uh, decided I you know I needed something else to, yeah. to work on and, and I had made some relationships through my dabbling in the in the aquarium stuff and so I um, this gentleman Jack Kent had been purchasing the vast majority of the venturi aspirators that I was selling yep. which are a component for a protein skimmer and so what happened was uh, 
I one day I was like, Jack, I, I want to make something else. I want to do something else. And he's like, well, why don't you do an algae scraper? And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And I, I haven't uh, ever seen a decent quality algae scraper. And so I set about figuring out how to make an algae scraper. Now, Jack, he sold chemicals, so he didn't know about hard goods. And so he was happy to sort of throw me a bone and see what I did with it. Anyway, I came back to him like 18 months later with an algae scraper design, a professional quality algae scraper based on my experience scraping yeah. a lot of algae, lots and lots and lots and lots of algae. And, you know, lesson number one, the best ideas come from personal experience. That's so true. Like it was something I knew I needed or the, when I had my aquarium maintenance business, I would have had to have bought it. It would have been impossible for me not to. And so I created something that for a particular customer was irresistible because at the time all you could buy was crap. Like it was a $5. They have the magnet. I remember I used to have turtles as a kid and I wish I would have had something like that because the magnet things that sometimes they fall off, th yeah, well, they were a pain in the butt and I had nothing to clean my tanks. And the magnets are convenient if you've got like one smaller tank, but if you're cleaning lots of aquariums. Yeah, exactly. Just wanted a high quality sponge on a uh, blade on a stick. So we had replaceable blades and nice stiff yeah. handle that was fiberglass and it looked nice and it was high quality materials and it lasted. So that was the Kent Marine Pro Scraper, and um, I thought I'd sell like two or three thousand of them a year, and we sold thirty-five thousand of them my wow. first year. So I got pretty fortunate there because I was in partnership with Jack, and Jack already had distribution in a lot of stores, and he was kind enough to act as a mentor to me. He could have really abused his uh, power in that position, instead he took me under his wing, told, talked to me about margins, explained how much I needed to mark stuff up to make money, and the whole thing together for me basically he um, even told you basically what to charge him didn't he right yeah yeah he <laughs> said you know double your money and so i was like oh, really okay and then that's I'll, awesome and uh but we both made a lot of money selling that algae scraper we sold you know hundreds of thousands of them over its life and wow so you know my business today then really got built on the back of income from that algae scraper and i I studied comparative religion at Ohio State University, which is a fascinating and very valuable education, uh, but didn't necessarily set me up for getting a job exactly. Um, but I created my own job and, and was able to use the lessons I learned in my studies, you know, starting a business, which has been invaluable. Like I learned how to write and communicate. And you, talk. you learned more about how people think in college yeah what yeah what makes people tick and yeah. why they do the things they do nothing more important to know especially when you're developing products because <laughs> you got to think you're a consumer you can't just think of yourself because a lot of people try to do an idea and they realize well find out nobody wants it <laughs> right well and how do you really put yourself in someone else's shoes it's hard and, when you're biased right and you know that's the kind of stuff i studied in college like there's rigorous methods by which you can yeah sort of like be someone else and give up your own identity in order to like try to see things through their eyes more effectively you never truly can but there's you know better ways and there are ways is. that don't work <laughs> so you had the success with the algae scraper you made some good a good amount of money luckily you didn't have to do the nine-to-five job which most entrepreneurs hate right i'm allergic to work <laughs> same here and uh so where'd you go from there you, you had success with the algae scraper what'd you do next well, the algae scraper was selling, and so I immediately decided I needed to hire an employee. <laughs> In <laughs> retrospect, was maybe not the smartest move, but I had visions of building this grand company, and the first one was so easy. Like, it was such an instant 
anybody can do it. Success, right. And I was like, oh, I'll just keep doing this. So I hired someone and we started coming up with new aquarium products and then branching into guitar accessories. I'm a guitar player. And so I had some ideas for some maintenance equipment and, uh, you know, was off to the races. Um, and then I developed my next product and it flopped. It was, and, you know, and then I developed my next product and it flopped. And so pretty quickly I was learning that, oh. It's a lot harder than what people think. Right. I got, there was some X factor in that first product that caused it to go that I had lucked into but I wasn't lucking into it the second time. I wasn't like some genius who just knew. <laughs> like, yeah. I knew I got lucky the first time. And now it's like, okay, shoot, I got to figure this out. I have to reverse engineer. Why did that one work? And these other ones didn't. And how can I engineer it so that as I keep going, I'm more likely to reproduce that success like I did that first time yeah. rather than the subsequent flops. And so... I, I spent a lot of time like walking around like thinking, what is it? And, like, what's the formula? And what I came up with at the time in, in collaboration with, with my team was what we called the perfect product pyramid, which was the uh, design function technology. It's smart. Yeah, I yeah. saw it. Simple. Yeah. So one of the things that I've, I've learned in, uh, in comparative religion is that, you know, simple formulas work really well for people memorizing them. Like, you know, threes are, are valuable because it's easy to remember three things. If you got a big long list of it, here's the 20 ingredients of the perfect product. Then everyone's like, Oh shoot. Did I forget number, you know, 13? Exactly. You just can't remember. There's too much. And so I, I was like, well, what are the three things if we're going to split it into three? And it was like, well, the technology or the concept what's the basis of the product is it a good idea yeah and then next is like your execution on the product does your good idea turn into a nice thing to use that exceeds people's expectations on the functionality and then the last bit the, the top of the pyramid is design which is what the thing looks like and how it easy it is to understand design's big on everything yeah i mean design is ultimately the main decider when all things equal between two products if one of them excites people emotionally that's usually the one that's going to win so and it's also the tip of the pyramid because it's the point that of the arrow that pierces the market that you're shooting at if if you have a real broad tip bland design going after everyone then you're not usually going to penetrate exactly. the market. So you got to target a specific individual who needs your product. Like with my algae scraper, I was targeting, you know, aquarium geeks. Um, my next product was a, a guitar string winder, which borrowed the aesthetic and sort of like functionality from my aquarium products. And, you know, what I missed there amongst other things was the fact that that aesthetic was like the totally wrong aesthetic for the guitar player. The guitar player wants something warm and sort of classy musical, not something techy and like science fiction looking. So you, you didn't, that one didn't work then that idea. Right. It didn't work. It also had, you know, a smoother turning axle for this guitar string (laughs) winder, which was not something that people understood they needed or could understand the, benefit of or could see by looking at it and so like they had to read the text to learn why it was better they couldn't just know that it was better based on instantly recognizable benefits whereas the algae scraper when you've got like a sponge on a stick next to a you know a sleek looking high quality device that with interchangeable blades and different 
tips you're like oh one of these is like very simple and low value and the other one has tons of extra features so you could instantly tell why it had more value how much money did you have invested in the the guitar idea about twenty five thousand dollars. and then once you got that point how did you make the decision it's hard for people once they go in they feel like i'm already in i have a bunch of money and i'm not turning back how'd you give the to get the power in yourself to say hey i gotta leave this project and well what i did i mean i went so far as to get molds cut so i had molds to produce them and i found someone in the industry a small accessories yeah. manufacturer called shub who made capos and a few other odds and ends accessories nice stuff and ended up selling him the mold at a you know pennies on the dollar basically so, so that he could then take it out and sell it and at least i got some money got back, some huh? money back yeah. and he still sells them today but you know i don't know how many he sells probably not he that learned many, you know, <laughs> you know, he learned from that though i mean you learn from them mistakes to help better yourself and lead to products where you did succeed and for example, I want to go into the Power Squid. Ye- very successful product. You sold, they sold millions of units of it. And I, I looked on the internet. There's so many knockoffs of it that try to copy you. Yeah, well, knockoffs are inevitable. Any successful product exactly. will be knocked off. Don't, and it doesn't matter if you have a patent. The knockoffs will come, and they will erode your margins, and then your margins will decrease, and then you'll potentially spend some time and effort trying to reclaim some of your margins through legal actions but that may or may not pay off but yeah. nevertheless ultimately you need to go out and re-innovate uh, yeah so this is called the knockoff effect <laughs> How, what is the biggest struggle you had with taking the power squid to market the process you took with it well so the power squid just so the listeners here uh know is like a power strip multiple outlet power strip that has little short extension cords on it that allow you to easily accommodate all your plugs you never get crowded it's easier to plug and unplug things and when i first came up with the idea back in 2001 all the charging bricks were like big old blocks they called them wall warts um now today you know everyone's used to little white guys that apple pioneered but before they you know used to be really big and if you put them on your strip you'd cover two or sometimes exactly. three outlets and it was really annoying and so one day i was struggling and i was like man this there's got to be a better way and you know eureka what if the little cords came out and allowed you to have little outlets um at the end of flexible cords so you could just flex them where you needed to and i originally in my first conception called that the power blossom and then brought that into my office and then that'd be hard to picture as a pot power blossom yeah it was like a little <laughs> pot with a little <laughs> flower coming out of it it was cute and then uh but my design team and i brainstormed about it for a few days and yeah it, it became the squid it was long instead of vertical and and it became like cool looking instead of cute and then we filed a patent on it made some prototypes and we're like man well the first thing we did was we did research because that's always the first step. The biggest thing. Yeah, it's like that people skip. They don't want to know. They don't want bad news. So exactly. it's like not going to the doctor to find out what that lump is. And like, you should probably go and find out because the bad news is better to find out find out soon. And before you spend $100,000 on your product, and I have talked to people who've spent big money and months and months and months pursuing a product without ever really searching find out what the competitive landscape is because they were like putting their heads in the sand they didn't want to know exactly they didn't want proof that they weren't a genius <laughs> this isn't genius work 
people this is this is like down and dirty blue collary head down nose to the grindstone keep pushing forward your product idea one step in front of the other and you know there might be a, a moment of genius at some point in there but um don't get sold on the idea that you're smarter than other people. It'll don't get a big head in the process it, because it might end up very bad for you. <laughs> right. Well, especially if you haven't done this before. Like, no matter how good your idea is, you have to approach it with humility because you need the help of other people. And they can smell someone who doesn't know what they're actually talking about from a mile away because they say all the wrong things. Yeah. So come at it with humility. And people are very open, love to help. There's a real supportive world out there for people who approach it with humility. Wait. Um, when you approached it, and obviously, so you guys did a lot of research. Was there anything out there, I mean, somewhat similar to it? Uh, well, the closest thing where there's a little, uh, you could buy a set, and you get like six little short extension cords called yeah. liberator cords, which, you know, you just got a little pack of cords. It wasn't that cool. It wasn't anything special. It, it wasn't anything cool or special. It was a great idea, and they were very popular, but the thing wasn't like a thing. Yeah. It was like a little pack of cords, and the power squid provided the same functionality, except it was like a thing. It was a power squid. Part of the success of that product, ultimately, I, I really think, is the name. People are fascinated by squid. Oh, yeah, exactly. Aliens that yeah. live on Earth. The tentacles yeah. coming out. <laughs> and so, so, so tell me, the, the amount of money, did you, did you have Trident design it? At that time? Yeah, we designed it. I raised some angel capital from some okay. friends and family. And fools. And fools. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, just friends and family. Uh, maybe they were the fools. And, uh, <laughs> I've been there and done that. It, <laughs> it's a little difficult going in front of your family and say, hey, this great idea. Will you, will you invest? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I guess one of the things that I think has helped me on my journey is I've never been afraid to ask people to sign up to help. Um and, you know, it's not always worked out, but I've always been up front. And if I explain yes. the risks and they say, yes, buyer beware, right? As long as you're being straight with people and honest with people. And, you, you know, of course, in my honesty, I'm an optimist. So that's just how I am. Um, but the squid, you know, we raised some money and we got patent pending. And then this comes to the first hardest part of it was getting it licensed. So I determined that I was not in the position to try to set up a company to manufacture and exactly. sell power squid. It's a high voltage device. Theoretically, it could burn down a house and kill people. It was much more complicated than I was prepared to tackle, having done an algae scraper and a couple of guitar accessories. So, um, so I decided licensing was the way. And at the time, I just licensed one very simple kitchen gadget. And so I go to the Consumer Electronics Show with my little prototype in my backpack and wearing cargo pants and like a T-shirt. And I was like totally inappropriate. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why these people weren't taking me seriously. <laughs> you got to go to enough people. I mean, <laughs> eventually you're going to have some people that are going to believe in you. Right. Well, and who are going to see through my obvious naivete yeah. to, you know, the fact that I had what appeared to be a, a very good idea though uh, I had identified before I went to the show nine or ten companies to go to and they were like no bad idea no bad idea no bad idea don't waste your time kid go home no bad idea no bad idea and it was like quickly disheartening I was like I, I was not feeling well I was sick yeah and like everyone I went to was like giving me like the most negative feedback imaginable and i was like really getting dejected it's tough yeah, yeah. it's like whew, man i have 
blown it. <laughs> I'm going home to face, you know, I don't even know what my next step is. And, and like literally as I'm like walking out of the trade show, like something catches my eye out of the corner of my eye. It's the title at a booth. It says Power Century. I'm like Power Century. Well, that's a promising yeah. name for a certain power strip. And I walk over there and in fact, it's a booth. All they're selling is power strips. Never heard of them before. I say, who's in charge here? (laughs) And I was 25 at the time, um, your age. And and so I talked to this guy and he's like, yeah, we just, well, we just got this new president. He's real big on uh, innovation. Talk to him. So I meet this guy, Mark Schaffner, and he's like sort of barking at me, you know, but he's like, yeah, I want innovation. Show me your thing. Oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Talk to me after the show. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And, uh, Anyway, so we get in a negotiation, and Power Century turns out they're owned by Fiskars, and they're even though you've never heard of them, kind of the I would say at the time generic brand available at Walmart and Target, and great executors, if not a fancy brand, and so they took on the product in order to decide, you know, license they, it. Yeah, they had a large just how many stores did they roll it out to? Well, or- originally their first two customers were. Basically, there were only two significant customers at the time yeah. were Walmart and Target. Now, I will tell you, it took them three years to get it to market. It, three years. Three years from when you met with them? Yeah, it was three years later that it launched. Wow. In 2005. Um, why? Because this is hardware, and they call it hardware because yeah. it's hard, and they should call it very hard. <laughs> it's like you have no idea if you haven't done it before. It seems like, oh, yeah, just – just make the thing. Just make the molds. Then if you get on Alibaba today, it's like, oh, 45 days to your first samples. Yeah, 45 days to your first samples after they actually start that process, which, like, because of communication and blah, 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 it you know, takes a couple weeks. Then you get your first samples, which actually ends up taking 60 days because 45 days in Chinese is short for 60 days. That's so true. Or 90 <laughs> days. And then you get your samples. Oh, by the way, they take a week to get shipped to you and you get through customs. And then you get them and then you look at them and you're like, whoa. And then... And then you're like, well, we got to tweak this and we got to tweak that. And they're like, okay, that'll be another 45 to 60 days. And then we got to make more samples and send them to you. And by the way, all those samples cost something plus 250 bucks in shipping every time. I mean, it just adds And the up. samples aren't always going to work. <laughs> right, right. And then and meanwhile, it turns out that the Power Squid, which seemed simple, had some tricky engineering challenges to it, having to do with the clamping force that the shell created. And now that you have six cords coming out of it instead of one cord and then, you know, because they got to test it with like a kid comes and finds the thing and start yanking on the cord. Is he going to cause a short inside that's later going to burn your house down and kill a family? So like you got to build the thing robustly. And so how do we solve that? And then like there was a problem solving thing around that on and on. Finally, everything's good. Then finally you send it to UL and UL says, this is a new and unusual product. We have to write a new specification. Stamp extra year, extra wow. 50 grand for my client. Jeez. And then they like they finally write the new specification. Then they send the thing through, and it fails the first time. So we got to send it back through, and now it passes. And then they come back after it passes and say, "Never mind, we passed it under the wrong specification." You're like you wrote a new specification. Oh, paperwork from mistake. their mistake. And like just like on and on and on. You're like, holy, mo-, like it's just welcome to the world. It's not just like smoothly operating all the time. And people are trying their best, but there's a lot going on. And then other times, people are just literally trying to screw you yeah and so like there became some political battle inside of ul and i mean it just went on and on it's funny because everybody hears about the power squid you made millions you sold so many but they don't know the story of 
how hard it took, how many years, how, how many years did it take for you to get to the point where you got a license and you deal with them? And how much money did you have to spend to get to that point? Yeah, I, I probably had about, I don't know, 75 to $100,000 invested and, you know, two years of effort before I got it licensed and three years to come out. So it was a year, uh, five years from idea to money. Okay. Five years from idea to money. And then, like, it started, and it started fast and hard with, like, Walmart and Target, but fast and hard, you know, still takes time to ramp up. And so, like, really, the money at first was, like, a 1000 a month, 3000 a month, 5000 you know, then, but then, you know, Bed Bath and & Beyond, and, and then You were really PVC rolling out, and yeah. And, like, boom, 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 and, like, it, it just kept going and going, and then pretty soon I was getting, like, $25,000 a month. Jeez. And I was like... Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I I did succeed. I with did it. it. I did it. I made it. And then, and then one day I got a call that uh, Phillips Electronics had purchased Power Century. They didn't tell me this was in the works. But yeah. Phillips saw this like little accessories company taking off, doubling in size in a few years, and they were like, "We want to get into accessories. Let's get this company and mash them together with a few other companies, and we'll create Phillips Accessories." Which, uh, you know, last year they. You know, they bought like several companies worth you know hundreds of millions of dollars, and then last yeah. year, like, tried to sell the whole thing for like less than yeah a hundred million dollars. Failed experiment at Phillips. Anyway, so you know, Power Squid as part of that failed experiment failed. So Phillips bought Power Century, and then I renegotiated my deal with Phillips. I you know everyone's like, now we're really rich, right? <laughs> <laughs> now we have Phillips, thirty-five billion dollar company. Turns out that. Uh, when you have one smaller company with like eight totally dedicated maniacs on a mission salesmen focused on your product, which is their number one most exciting thing to pull out of their bag, you get a lot better results than you do with a hundred salesmen who have five thousand products to sell, including like Sonicare toothbrushes and Norelco razors and as cool as the power squid was, they mostly salesmen didn't even know it was in the catalog. And so the sales started to decline meanwhile Phillips, having bought all this company, decided they needed you know fewer products. They canceled the product, and so it's no longer sold on the market now. Not by Phillips. Okay. So by you other. know basically, so f- I get a call one day, eight you know a year into my I thought, you know, fifteen year agreement that had me rich. Yeah. To say that actually we're no longer going to be selling Power Squid and don't expect any more royalties. But today, I mean. How much money has it produced in royalties, and how much money has it sold on the market total gross revenue for this product? Well, it's generated a, 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 over a million in royalties. Yeah. Royalties, so about one point two million in royalties, and um, so that's at you know five percent, five percent of wholesale. So do the math, whatever that is, twenty times that. So that's a lot. Around twenty million dollars wholesale. So it's a nice hit. It's what we call a home run, maybe not a grand slam home run, but yes, it's certainly an. A, it had a real nice run, so it, it also subsequently I licensed the product to uh, Stanley Brand, GE Brand, a couple smaller companies, Excel and Bits. So Squid's still available in the marketplace, but at a small shadow of its former glory when it was at every major retailer. The only major retailer it's at now is Fry's Electronics yeah. and Target, and just one skew. So I mean, it's it's still there. Yeah, um, but it also the the problem it was solving is gone away because the to a large extent because the wall works times change yes and the squid was the first product that broke the mold of of a power strip 
Yeah. Now there's like a lot of products that break that mold. It, it sort of paved the way for the pivot power and the power mid and all the slight different variations yeah. on the traditional power strip. And so it's not the only option out there other than a traditional strip. Um, and the other thing that's happening is people are moving to USB. So it had its day and uh, back Time is gone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, over time, things change, especially, I mean, now with the technology there is, things are changing faster and faster. It's what we call a who moved my cheese moment. <laughs> like my cheese got moved. I moved on. I've invented many, many things since then. Exactly. It was a great thing. So, so you know, but the hardest part, back to your earlier question that started us down this road, was getting it licensed Yeah, took, like, overcoming a lot of no's. And then it, so this creates this, like, interesting challenge for the inventor. You don't want to ignore feedback from the world, from experts, people who, who know things. So if everyone's telling you no, you may want to be like, wait a second, am I barking up the wrong tree? Like, shouldn't people be saying yes? And then, you know, on the other hand, like you got to stick to your guns and be passionate yeah. and, and ignore all those naysayers and, and go for it. You know, the, so like which which one is right? Well, they're both right. And, and a lot of what it comes down to is who's saying it and why. Yeah. So what I'm really excited about is hot yeses from consumers. When a consumer when I show it to someone, they're like, whoa, that's sweet. What is it? And I want that, you know, like not after you've explained it to them and enrolled them in it, but they just react that way when you just present the idea to them. They're like, holy cow, that's sweet. I need that. That is the kind of reaction I'm looking for from consumers. Now, when I show it to the folks at, like, the, pro you know, companies that didn't license the Power Squid, you know, consumers I showed it to, everyone I showed it to, like, on the street thought it was awesome and wanted one right away. Now, people in the companies didn't want one because they all had the same thing, which is, well, it's going to be more yeah. expensive and consumers won't pay more. Well, I had a lot of feedback from potential consumers that they would be happy to pay more to solve this problem. And so there was a latent demand. Yeah. There, there's so much feedback you get. And y you gotta, it's, it's kind of hard to know which feedback you should listen to and which you shouldn't because everybody's going to have their own opinion. And uh, it's going to be different between the actual customer itself and the stores. But you're right how do you know i mean it's, it's so tough you gotta one the thing you also gotta realize the f the first customer you have to sell your product to is the buyer or if you're licensing it the company yeah so they have different considerations than you know the consumer like the consumer doesn't care the dollars per square foot that the product takes up and how much you can exactly. fit in a cube Whereas the buyer really cares. The buyer has like a formula. They have to make sure they're selling a certain number of dollars per square foot in their store. And so that product needs to Gotta generate. That. And if it doesn't pack up small, it's got low dollar val value density for the space. It doesn't work in their store just because they have yeah. to use the square footage in a certain way. And like if, if you're not in that industry, how would you know that? What? So you invent something big and light and cheap. And then they're like, it's well, true. we can't possibly fit enough on the floor to sell enough to use that square footage well so you've had success doing licensing and I'm, I'm aware that you you like to focus a lot in licensing now but can you tell me a story where you've actually manufactured yourself and tr treated it as your company and just went forward on that route yeah so my big follow-up to the power squid I mean there were a lot of other little ones on the side yeah. products that I'd licensed here and there but my first big 
play post power speed was a, an idea I had called the thirsty light, which was a little digital moisture sensor that you would stick in your potted plant and it would blink a light to tell you when to water your plant. And it would blink faster as the soil got drier. I had the idea because I bought this bird that was supposed to be a little ceramic bird that you would put in your plant and it would chirp to tell you when to water the plant. Well, it did not work and I ended up smashing it in the middle of the night because <laughs> I couldn't get the thing stopped chirping at me and kept waking me up. And couldn't get the battery out so I like smashed it with a hammer so I could get to the battery and take it out so I could sleep and I was like man I just want to bring blinking light that'll be easy we have a saying around here trident uh, easy to say hard to do yeah so I ended up hiring an engineering firm to help me with the electrical engineering and spent about a hundred thousand dollars creating this product which interestingly wow all the buyers I talked to all the everyone thought this was going to be an awesome product the next big thing the next big thing and consumers once it finally got to the market yawned they didn't really care for it that much no one cared and it was like a thing where i again i learned a lesson where like i would show it to consumers and like i didn't get the like wow that's awesome but i would talk them into it yeah i'd be like does this and then like oh that's pretty cool yeah it wasn't like oh my god i need that right <laughs> it was like oh and it was only after i explained it because you you would look at it and you're like what is it it, it was like a stick with a green ball in there is that shrek's uh q-tip <laughs> <laughs> and i was like so like i had to explain why it was cool well in store shelves people don't give you that time and like yeah. even with great packaging i didn't have like an ad budget so we sold it into bed bath and beyond qvc uh kmart radio shack everywhere it went consumers yawned and i did it flop or did it i mean kind of sell a little bit it sold a little bit it sold a little bit and uh but nothing approaching enough to stay on the shelves for anyone to be excited yeah. about um did you at least break even on yeah in the end what i did is i i found a company in the gardening space and sold it to them oh. and just like got out of it. Um, and they're still selling them today. Thirsty lights. You can, you can get them. They got a new little version that has little bugs on top. It's cute. And yeah. uh, it doesn't sell in any great quantities. Um, and a bunch of competitors have appeared. We were the first ones to do a digital plant moisture sensor. Everyone, the ones that didn't work were all analog. So we were the first ones to see, Oh, with the low cost of yeah. dig digital technology today, you could do like a little $10 thing. Well, now there's like 10 of them. There's $100 things with Bluetooth in them from Parrot. And, you know, there's yeah. some, I don't know how they're all doing. I know Thirsty Light never went huge. My read on it is that people just don't care that much about their yeah. houseplants. That's the other <laughs> thing I miss. It's like, oh, we're solving a problem that the people who really care about their houseplants know when they need to be yeah. watered and don't need to be told. And the people who need a device to tell them, to remind them to when to water their houseplants, Ignore the blinking light. <laughs> so you obviously learned a lot from that process. And what kind of seems to be is you learned that you're going to stick with licensing, manufacturing. Well, not not entirely. I, I mean, I learned a couple things. I learned a lot of stuff. But I, I'm manufacturing stuff still today. It did yeah. push me towards when, you know, always considered licensing first. Yeah. Um and the other really big lesson I took out of that that should not be missed was my first batch of Thirsty Lights came in, and I had a quality control inspections. I had a quality control procedure that I'd written, come up with, and and I hired, like, uh, an Asian inspection company to 
do my inspection and then I got 10,000 units and it was 30% effective. Oh, wow. And that's hard. Yeah. And then it's like, what happened here? And, and it like, it was so stressful and expensive and challenging to work my way through. And basically at the end, what I learned is, you know, quality control is like an, for most people, an afterthought. Like, they're just like, oh, I'm going to make my thing, and, you know, then I'm going to inspection, and then it'll be done. But, like, not the, they're seeing the inspection is just, like, this last little tiny little thing that needs yeah. to be done, the last, like, 1%. Managing your quality control and getting good product out of Asia or even out of an American supplier, having clear guidelines, specifications, and controls, and then testing procedures is, like, 30% of the job. Yeah, it's not the last little bit. It's like something that has to be built in from the beginning, and it costs a lot of money. And you look at the cost of getting stuff, and you don't consider the cost of the inspections. And the there's a lot of stuff you don't figure in. Yeah, and it, so the big thing. I mean, after us talking about the products you develop, it costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of time, and there's a lot of things that you don't see even at the beginning. You don't see other costs that are going to come and hit you. <laughs> Right, nowhere. When, right, and you know, and you can get experts to help you, and you can study up, like yeah. study up. <coughs> but also, part of the only way to learn it is to walk down is that path do. a few times, and so jump off that cliff and learn as you go. Yeah, and if if you got to be committed, you got to be like, this is what I want to do. I see this as like my thing, and so I'm going to figure it out no matter what it takes. And if if, if it fails, I'm going to do the next one, and then if that fails, I'm going to do the next one. And I'm just going to keep doing it, and if I succeed, then I can learn from that one, and then I can do it again, and that one might fail. You know, I'm just going to keep doing it, and that's been my thing. Is like I've just kept publishing, publishing, just over and over. Next invention, next invention. What's yes. next? What's next? And overcoming, you know, the odds, and like occasionally we. Uh, are fortunate to have enough wins yeah that it overcomes our losses and we've had a few big wins um but it's never gotten easy like it's still it's always going to be hard but a challenge. You, you know it it's become a little easier now with crowdfunding crowdfunding has changed i mean everything and has allowed people that are creative and have an idea to well really brand to the masses without even investing a lot of money and your company has started doing more with crowdfunding. You have a pretty uh, impressive track record. You've done the Quick Key, the Carbon Flyer. They raised over I think $300,000. And you also redesigned the Coolest Cooler, which was a project that was going on during my Kickstarter campaign with Arctic Stick. And I had reached out to Ryan Grabber, pretty cool guy. And He's he, a great guy. Yeah, and he uh, he said, oh, we're, we're promoting. I tried to get a little cross-promotion, which, I mean, hey, you got to ask. But I – Nothing against them for not wanting to do any cross-promotion, but they raised $13.2 million. A lot of people don't know that was his second crowdfunding campaign. The first one he did, it it fell short. They tried to go 125000 They raised one hundred three, But then they brought it back to you to redesign it. Can you tell me, what did you guys do to that cooler to make it even cooler and help it get to the success it did? So – yeah, well, what we did is we redesigned it. He came to us with his original concept, which was for a cooler with a built-in margarita blender and Bluetooth speaker. And then my design team redesigned it, figured out a look for it, and then the interaction of all the components that Ryan had identified. He wanted it to do this, 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 and this. Yes. Now figure out how to make these things all come together harmoniously and look 
totally cool. And then Ryan had a vision that he shepherded through our design team, through iteration after iteration after iteration, just like drive, drive, drive. How do we create, you know, something that's going to really capture the imagination? And so, you know, my team basically acted as his hands and, uh, you know, they're super talented hands. And so that's what happened is, and they basically to Ryan's credit, we did a lot of sketches yeah and it was always like that's pretty cool that's pretty cool but it's not quite that you know <laughs> that's pretty cool not that not yet not yet you turn into that yeah. that's awesome moment right. with and, it and i remember actually the moment when nick who was the the primary designer on that um project came and he's like i i got it and he like puts this pe- piece of paper down in front of me he's like that's it <laughs> and i was like oh yeah that's it and, like, everyone's <laughs> like yeah that's it and then that's it, awesome sent it to ryan he's like oh yeah that's it like it just like a lot of work and then suddenly there was a moment when it all coalesced into the right design and so so nick did that and then my other guy christos um did the cad work on it and then we were able to help him get a prototype made then he ran his campaign and so the design obviously was one of the huge contributing factors yeah the, the second um campaign being so successful that and then he made a much m- more different w- approach to crowdfunding yeah well His timing campaign. was huge yeah so the first one he ran in the winter this one he ran in the summer yeah. and even though you're not getting product right away people know, are people thinking about it they're out on the side and you guys i mean you guys did a lot i love the design of that cooler your team at trident really <laughs> made it the wow it is and uh, that's awesome is it still he raised 13.2 million mm-hmm. that's the largest crowdfunding uh, well, it project. wasn't until two weeks ago, and then the Pebble Time, the new Pebble Watch, is now at like eighteen million. What did they relaunch the Pebble? Well, the the next generation Pebble. Oh, okay. So they and and they're very smart. So like they offered a special edition to anyone who owned a Pebble already. They've got two million customers. Yep. So like just like that, boom! Like I mean, it took them like two days to cross thirteen million. You're like, yeah. wow, that was some good marketing. And the in- interesting thing, if you watch, look at their campaign, it's not super slick. Yeah. And, of course, they could have made it as slick as they wanted to. It's still got a very authentic sort of folksy feel to it. It's not trying to impress you. They could. But that's not what works in crowdfunding. And so, like, what works best is, like, authentic things that it people does. can resonate with. And they feel like they're connected to the creation. There's real people. It's not a evil corporation. Yeah. The corporate companies are trying it out. They're getting involved. Like, big, big companies are... Yeah, it's not just waters. single people, inventors going on there and doing it now. I mean, it's getting big groups. And right. So you guys have jumped into doing crowdfunding. What have you learned? I mean, you had the quick key. They raised a couple hundred thousand. Was it like 200,000 with the quick key? 221. Yep, to be exact. And uh, 300 with the carbon flyer. What were some of the mistakes you guys made with your crowdfunding campaigns? What have you learned from them? Well, we've learned a lot, I think. The biggest challenge has been for us is l- like learning how to manage the community. Like we have a design firm and we're like yeah. creating these products and launching it. And then we've got people wearing like 10 different hats around here. We're a small company. And then you get a lot of feedback from the uh, backers and from the community yeah. and they want instant response. And I know. It's I mean, the reality difficult. is <laughs> we got, uh, you know, who's, you know, it's like our, we don't have a thousand people here. Right. We don't have someone. <laughs> to, we're not able to afford someone dedicated to just answering questions and 
generating updates you know meanwhile the people who would generate the updates have their heads down trying to work on the project so it's like giving enough communication that people feel heard but also having you know the ability to get everything else done and trying to figure out the line to walk and if you send out too many emails people complain that you're sending out too many emails and if you send out not enough emails they say you're not sending out enough emails and so at the end of the day you know it's you realize there's no winning exactly because pe some people have different expectations or desires yeah. that you can't live up to um but you know we try to stay on top of it and just you know learn to like understand and not take offense to the fact that you know some people just have a lot of time on their hands and they want to spend it complaining and uh i found that out too it's yeah. people just sit on their computer and mm -hmm. they have something bad to say but you're gonna have them come out of their shell what but, so but what we've learned to get a lot more proactive and be yeah. more responsive at first we were like i oh, just you know we're too busy we'll get around to him now we're yeah. like oh we better get, get on it now this. yeah so we try to get back i mean ideally i'd like to be able to get back to him within like 30 minutes yeah. but like even like within the day like like make sure everyone gets answered every day so that people don't think we're ignoring them even yeah. though we're not ignoring them it's just it's Wh hard to get to everything that there is to get to Wh what are your biggest tips for people out there everybody's trying to do a crowdfunding campaign people come to me and it really you could be an expert at it but nobody can perfect it there's a lot to doing a campaign and there's more than people think what are your biggest tips to give people that want to do their own Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any kind of crowdfunding campaign? I mean, number one thing is know that the success doesn't happen because you just throw the thing up there. You cause the success to happen. It, you cause it by executing the campaign with excellence, having a great product, and then creating a great campaign that's super well-considered, smart perk structure. Don't underestimate the value of like carefully considered perk structure. People don't get that a lot and have the wrong perks um good looking graphics great quality video though authentic not too slick yeah not too clever um and then like really a um 50 of your efforts marketing so most people they think it's like 95 percent the thing and then the marketing just takes care of itself no you like we put a tremendous amount of energy in building up to the launch day, and then launch day is a big day. You want to get early momentum that carries you through the campaign. So we have, like, email campaigns and Facebook campaigns and social media stuff all leading up to the day it launches. And then the day it launches, we hit a barrage of, like, do it today, do it today for the best deals, do it today. That gets you, hopefully, enough sales on day one that you build momentum that carries you. To push it through. Yeah, it gets you higher page ranking, which then starts to get you those organic hits, which makes it look like you're having an exciting campaign, which means that you'll get some press, which means you'll get more eyeballs, which gets you higher page ranking, which gets you, hopefully, into the newsletters, and the newsletters were the real And hope money go viral. Happens. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the thing. The biggest mistake I see over and over is, at least with people who have otherwise good-looking, well-executed campaigns is that they don't understand that they have to force the first day to be big through their efforts of, like, networking and leveraging their, their networks. It's like six to eight weeks of preparation before you even launch. Yeah, it? yeah, easily, easily. I, I mean, because you got to put together – do you guys get people, like, say, hey, you guys going to be on board for backing this right away so you can try to hit that initial burst right off the gates? Yeah, well, we, we – uh, create like email camp 
we build email lists yeah. using like a giveaway. We're gonna we're getting ready to launch the groove. You're gonna want one. Sign up. Give us your email. We're gonna give away ten, and then we use Facebook ads to drive people yeah. to the contest. That's on the Trident Facebook page, with the idea of eventually, you know, so on launch day we hope to have you know at least a, a thousand ish emails just for this campaign plus we have all the emails we've captured from previous yeah. campaigns plus the ones that we get through the trident site so maybe we've got like twenty thousand emails that we can hit on the first day plus using our facebook pages and promoting posts and then reaching out to our networks and say hey can i count on you to promote this on your and network? hope they i reached out when i did mine I would reach out to newspapers and bloggers and stuff. Do you guys have a group of people that you reach out to to try to get that publicity? Not only just the publicity you get from creating an awesome campaign? Yeah, we have some people that we would go to, but generally actually you know, maybe we prep them a little, but I don't actually hit the media hard until yeah. we've actually got some momentum. Because yeah. if they show up at the thing and it doesn't, it's not doing anything, they're going to be like, well, this is not an exciting campaign. If they show up and they're already 50% funded and it's only – you know, two days old, yeah. then they'll be like, oh, there's something interesting going on here. So they're looking for social proof. And so you don't want them to show up too soon before you've got that social proof. Otherwise, they're less likely to write on it. And they're not nearly as likely to visit a second time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm doing real well now. You know, you should come back and reconsider writing about us. doesn't work as well as like, come check out our campaign. We're 24 hours old and we're 30% funded. And then they're like, oh, wow, you know. That's an exciting message. You walk the walk, prove yeah. it to them, and then let them come and do it. So that's been kind of our strategy is to use our networks and email and Facebook yeah. stuff to get like a big first day. Then once we show some success, then we go and, you know, hit up the yeah. media. Do you, do you guys hold events? Do you, a lot of people will do like a, a Kickstarter party or have an event where they show their product. Do you guys do anything like that? Uh, Just – intra-company yeah yeah we don't have like a big party yeah. shindig with it but we get some beer and pizza and sit around the first night and yeah Say smile and dial <laughs> that's awesome can i count on you to back our campaign yeah exactly and get Spooze five you. of your friends to back here's a computer campaign. do it now <laughs> right <laughs> come by <coughs> we yeah well and any anyone who happens to show up any clients who happen to show up that day would be like do you have five minutes to spare to like yeah. back our campaign? We'll take it off your bill. So, so you know, when you do a campaign, you have so many people reach out to you and say, hey, I can get you all kinds of backers. Well, for this amount of money, we'll do 10 $1 pledges. You want to get a lot of traction. Or, hey, I can get you into all these newspapers. Out of all them people out there that do come to you to try to help promote your campaign, are any of them really reputable? Or can you trust them at all? Uh. I don't know. I we have tried uh, several. Yeah. Um, with no effect. So like. Me too. I I had spent a lot of money and I didn't really see anything come from it. Yeah, I mean we we, we not really big spends, but uh, smaller spends. We gave it a shot a few times just to see if some of them moved. You know, a hundred bucks there, a hundred bucks on this and that, and uh, you know, nothing generated anything. We did a couple bigger spends on uh, Carbon Flyer. We spent a couple grand on one thing that just turned out to be not worth it at all. So, yeah, yeah our, our experience so far hasn't been real positive. I'm not saying that none of them have value. There's nothing you've found so or, far. And it's also possible that those might have value with a different product. It's just, you know, I don't know all the variables. Um, yeah. 
but so far the evidence wasn't compelling enough that you know we're like looking for more of those yeah. opportunities you know when you do a, a crowdfunding campaign uh you have a lot of momentum and you build it up and it's like you're on cloud nine and you have all this publicity and all this attraction and ideally you want to keep that going. What is your best advice for keeping that momentum going after your time is up for your crowdfunding campaign to, to keep people that attract them buyers and still have them there because you can't really sell your product after that. How do you, I mean, what do you do? Well, Indiegogo now lets you go into in demand, which is like an ongoing crowdfunding yeah, campaign. Because so Does that extend it? Yeah, yeah, indefinitely, until you want to pull it out. So, oh, wow. So Carbon Flyer is in in-demand right now, and it's generated a, you know maybe like an additional $20,000 since, since the campaign wow. ended. We also put up a Shopify site to drive camp, you know, further contributions, so we're self-crowdfunding it through the Shopify site. So people can actually, I mean, put they, their they credit card on and buy it, pre-order? Yeah, well— crowdfund it you know, back yeah. our campaign yeah. on Shopify huh. um, and then we're running Facebook ads to drive people there so you know using groups that we've identified that might be interested and then we once we got a certain number of backers we created lookalike groups to continue to try to promote and so far like with carbon flyer we haven't gotten it to a high enough level of efficiency where we're thrilled with what we're getting based on what we're spending yeah. But I know some people who have, and so we're still tweaking that formula. It's not far off, but we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're ready to scale it. Yeah. But I think the the vision of creating something like that and being able to get your, you know, Facebook ads efficiency such that the cost to promote it is is enough less than what you get. You know, like ideally we'd like to spend fifteen to twenty dollars to make a hundred dollars. And then after cost of goods and all the other fees, you know, it's profitable. And so if you can hit that target, then then spend as much as yeah. you possibly can on advertising because if, you know, if you spend a lot of money and make a lot of money, yeah. then that's great. So what do you see, uh, last question, crowdfunding, I'm fascinated by it, but what do you see in the next five years? Because crowdfunding is really, I mean, just overloaded people are doing crowdfunding campaigns now. Where do you see this going in the next five years? Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Like it's it's just getting started, and, like, there's a lot of people doing it. What you're going to see is a lot more big guys getting involved. Like, the Internet, when it first appeared, was, like, yeah. all kinds of, you know, little guys doing stuff, and the big guys were like, what's this Internet thing? And then now it's dominated by the big guys. Yeah. Um, I don't know if crowdfunding will go that way exactly, but definitely – the bigger manufacturers and retailers are going to get involved because there's just such a compelling opportunity to get market feedback before you launch products and letting consumers vote with their dollars about which products they want to see developed. And so instead of guessing and then forcing your guess choice on consumers, they can vote on what they want yeah. with their dollars. And I think it's it's a incredibly valuable tool even beyond the funding side of it. The funding side is also incredibly important because it takes the gatekeepers away from capital. Without <coughs> giving any equity out. Right. It's, so it's incredibly important development for startups. And you're, I think it's just going to become more and more mainstream. Right now, the projects that tend to do well are not like mainstream consumer items. I think we'll see it move towards more and more mainstream consumer items as well as more and more mainstream big companies getting yeah. involved. 
and the continued evolution of the startup scene around it. So you and your team at Trident Design here, <clears throat> do you guys have the focus, do you want to focus more time on helping do more crowdfunding campaigns? Yeah, it's our main focus now. We're, we're yeah. um, planning on, you know, we've got a queue of nine products ourselves that, yeah. that we want to crowdfund in a row, you know, as quickly as we can. We've put together a, uh, an arrangement with another company that does sourcing and supply chain management so that we can focus on what we do and then hand it off exactly. to them and they'll do what they do so that we can do more products without it bottlenecking um, because of our own, you know, capabilities. And then we're also looking at helping other people. We've got our first couple campaigns going where we're actually helping other people run their campaigns using the expertise that we've developed in our network. So, yeah, we really see this as the next big thing. The next thing I for agree. Trident. Yeah. Um, we'll continue to license products, and licensing is always an end game after you crowdfund it. So, like the QuickKey, which is a little multi tool, after we crowdfunded it, we licensed it to Night Eyes because they have products like this in yeah. tens of thousands of retailers. We didn't want to try to duplicate that effort in that distribution network. Carbon Flyer, that company, little you know, remote control drone thing, we're like, we'll just own that ourselves. Because that's all. Bring <laughs> that to market is a cool company to own and a much smaller distribution channel. There's not that many yeah. avenues where you might sell a $150 remote control yeah. plane, whereas a little, you know, $5, $10 multi-tool you might sell yeah. at almost any store. Yeah, overall crowdfund, I mean, for one, you don't have to give any equity. Two, you have proof of track record sales and to, if you want to license your product. And three, even if you don't license it for manufacturing, you have that money to use to help pay for the tooling. So I, I see it as a, a great way, especially for young entrepreneurs and inventors out there. And unbelievable exposure. You cannot oh. buy at any price. Like. I I hundred percent agree. You, I mean, that n with no budget, could you guarantee the kind of coverage that's almost yeah. a sure thing with any level of success on a crowdfunding platform? Well, I I'll end on a few questions. I I could talk to you about crowdfunding, inventing all day, and there's so much about it. But I I want to hear a little bit of more about you. For young entrepreneurs out there, I always say it's good to have good mentors. Who have been your mentors, and how have they made an impact on your life? Well, my, my first mentor would be my father, Bob Hawker, who's an insurance executive, um, but he's been in business, you know, as, as long as I've known him. Yeah. And he's just always been a, a great mentor to me in terms of being a, in business and how to think about business. He's, he's in sales, so how to think about sales and generating opportunities and to think about that, how to look at things. He's in the insurance business through the lens of risk and risk reduction. Now, we've got very different risk tolerance, my father yeah. and I. Uh, <laughs> As an know, inventor, yeah. I'm an inventor, and he's an insurance salesman. <laughs> like, we are we have very similar minds, but very different uh, temperaments. Um, but we, you know, appreciate each other tremendously. And, and so I've, I've learned a lot from him about just sound business-making uh, strategy and math about, like, what's the math on this decision? Is it good math or bad math? Like, speeding has bad math. You know, you're going to make other people stressed out yeah and you might get a ticket you might get in an accident and because of stoplights and traffic you end up at your destination at the same time so it's just like quick simple like is there good math or bad math on this risk and so it's the same with um product development which is one of the reasons why crowdfunding is so exciting because it just it has really good math behind it yeah. in terms of risk uh other 
great uh, mentors. Well, and, and the other thing I'll say about my father is, is really just as a mentor in ways of being, being hardworking, having a you know good work ethic, refusing to quit, high level of commitment, always doing your best. These aren't uh, specific mechanical things, but there's yeah. ways of being that have served me very well in everything I'm doing and are way more important than any particular piece of knowledge about how to do something. Yeah. Okay. Two more questions. What are your top three books you would suggest? And I'll say, I always say entrepreneurs, but inventors out there. Uh, well, my favorite books that I recommend to everyone, first and foremost, are uh, Getting to Yes. Getting to Yes is a, a book about negotiation, and it doesn't matter what you're doing in your life. Understanding how to come to win-win agreements is incredibly, incredibly valuable uh, skill to have. And so I recommend that to everyone. I love the book The Tao Te Ching. It's a book um, based the, – the Taoist uh, philosophy is based on this book. It's a book about leadership, and it's a book about wisdom, and it's incredibly uh, valuable. Uh, little little book and uh, is there a third book I read? Well, those are the two that I had. Oh, there, but yeah, well, another book that I actually always recommend to people is called The Dip by Seth Godin. It's a really simple little book. Yeah, short and sweet, and it's about knowing when to quit. And um, it, again, it's like it's worth its weight in gold because it, it actually what it's about is about the power of commitment. So yes. if you're going to commit to something, see it through. Go all the way to the other side. Don't quit in the middle, which is where most people quit. So from the famous inventor himself, Chris Hawker, what are your top three tips for young inventors out there, anybody that wants to pursue their idea? What what tips do you give them? Uh, number one tip, with anything you do in your life, try very hard. Like Put 110% of yourself into it. The people try things at like 80% because they don't want to – fail at 100% and learn that they they failed when they gave it their all. And so they sort of like sell themselves short in order to, you know, not fail having tried their hardest. But it only works if you try your hardest. So like give things all your effort and all your love. Um, number two, do it with passion. So like passion is emotion, like get excited about things. My number one enemy is irony, being cool. Yeah. Like people like don't want to like show up as enthusiastic for fear that it'll like, you know, it's not cool. And being cool is the enemy of like being happy and being successful because, you know, you got you got to try hard. Back to that. Yeah. That other thing. Um, and the last thing is like educate yourself about what you're up to. Like, again, it's amazing to me the number of people who are willing to like dig deep on something with their like money and effort but not with their minds and so they'll, they'll jump into it and start spending a lot of time and energy on something without ever taking the time to like listen to podcasts and read books and create a structure that all this information can fall into so take the time to educate yourself and you'll reap dividends for a long time to come great advice hey i appreciate you coming on the show chris what, what can you tell viewers? Uh, where can they find your company, Trident Design, um, anything else? Yeah, so we're at uh, trident-design.com on the internet. Also, you can uh, I'm on Twitter at Inventor Chris, and I also have a blog, inventorsmind.com, where I have a, a blog, a podcast, and some videos that I do educating people on the mindset and mechanisms of 
making ideas from your, or sorry, making money from your ideas. What about crowdfunding? Do you have anything coming up in the future here with crowdfunding? Any campaigns you're about to launch? or? Yeah, we're getting ready to launch our next campaign, the Groove Knife Block, the ultimate knife block. And then after that, we'll have a toy called the Portal. The Portal. Going through a door has never been so much fun. <laughs> That's exciting. It's I'll have to check fun. that out. I'll let all the viewers know. We have fun here. Ba- I'm basically, I play for a living. I'm allergic to I working. see that walking in. Saw yoga going on, everything in the area. I, I want to start working here. I might just be like Lewis Howes and get my own desk. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for coming to the show. I appreciate it. Chris, thank you. For the viewers out there, until next time, I hope you go out there and create something great and become unforgettable. Because you know what? Life's too short not to. I'm Brennan Adams. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I really enjoyed interviewing Chris and meeting his whole team at Trident Design. They're based out of Columbus, Ohio. I made a trip down there, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. These guys had a lot of great insight. It's an awesome setup they have. They honestly have a powerhouse team to develop products, and not only that, do an awesome Kickstarter campaign, Indiegogo, any kind of crowdfunding. I highly suggest if you guys have a great idea you want to develop or you're looking to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign, you need to give Trident Design a call. You can check them on their website, www.trident-design.com. You can check out the notes on this podcast and learn more about Trident Design by checking out my website, brandontadams.com, and go under episode 13 with Chris Hawker. There's a lot of great notes there and links to the products he invented and also the crowdfunding campaign they're about to launch with the Groove Knife block. So check that out, guys. Be sure to share this with your friends. Let them know about it. We're all over the place. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, social media. Let your friends know. There's a lot of great info here. We're, we're getting a lot of great feedback. And honestly, this show is blowing up. We, I never would have thought that we were going to get this much attraction in this early stage of the game. But I'm excited. I'm thankful for you guys. I love you guys. Keep it going. And uh, keep telling your friends about it because we're doing a lot here. We're sharing a lot of great insight for other young entrepreneurs and uh, people there looking to achieve greatness in their life. So... I hope you guys have a great day, and in the meantime, go out there, create something great, and become unforgettable, because life's too short not to. I'm Brandon Adams. Have a great day, everybody.